I'm going to set my timer. I know it doesn't usually mean anything, but we'll try this morning to make it mean a lot more. Uh, so this morning, I, uh, I'm going to be sharing something that if you've been hanging about with me the last few weeks, um, hopefully it's been a good thing. Maybe it's been annoying you. But if it has been annoying you, shame on you because the Lord has asked us to do this. But we're going to talk about communion this morning. And so it continues on the series of Why Bother? And so this morning, I want to answer some of those questions around communion or depending on the background you're from, it could be called the Eucharist. And I want to answer the question, hopefully, why bother with communion? And so um, for all of us, we come from different denominations. We know in the Protestant denominations, there's hundreds of thousands. Um, You maybe come from a Catholic background. You maybe come from a Jewish background. I don't know. Um, But we all have different views of communion. We all have different ways of taking it. Some of us, uh, some of us, maybe the way we're used to it is once a week. Once a month where there's a big song and dance made about it. Maybe for you, it is a daily thing. Um, and even from your background, if, if you come from a Catholic background, uh, Neil and I were, were at a funeral in, um, in a chapel on Friday. And right at the center of the church was the table, the communion table and the lectern. So where the preaching happens off to the side. And so in the Catholic faith, the table is the center. And then more in the evangelical reform times brought in the minister in the middle, sharing the word of God as the center piece. That's a whole nother sermon. Neil's more equipped probably to do that and history, but that's really interesting. Maybe have a look at it yourself. Do you know what I found as as I've come to start looking um, into the table? It's really good to ask questions yourself. I can tell you lots of stuff this morning, and I'll try and and briefly do that as well as I can. But God wants you to do it yourself. He wants you to search. He wants you to ask. He wants you to find. Because see, when you find a gem, something comes alive. And so that's part of of where I'm at. For me, communion, I'll go into it a wee bit more um, later, but I I grew up as a, a Baptist pastor's son. And for me, communion was something that was done as a tradition. It was a ritual. I, if I am honest, didn't really have an understanding of what communion was. I just knew on a Sunday, after my dad's long preach, there was another long preach before we got the table and it was boring for me. But also there was something in me that it was really reverent and holy. I actually had a real fear of communion, just like I did. I've never in my life taken God's name in vain. Now, back in the days before Jesus, I had said a few other words, but I have never had this. There's something around it and it seemed really holy to me. And so how do you see the table? Do you see it as a tradition, a command? Maybe from your denomination, as I said, it was weekly. But really simply, what I have found as I have started to really fall in love with it over these last month, um, I had a, just this moment in prayer at the end of August where I felt God saying, I want you to start taking communion on a daily basis. I want you to really understand the power that comes from this table and that this table is actually a weapon for the kingdom of God. And you might remember a few weeks ago when uh, Neville and Neil weren't here, it was the morning after I had that revelation and we had communion together. So that's where I'm at. And what I found very simply is this, that communion is a gift. It was the last thing that Jesus gave us. It, was a, it is a gift. It is a tool. And it is a weapon. And so it is a tool to remember, but it is also a tool to point forward. It's not finished yet. So this morning, I'm going to read from just one chapter. I'm going to read from Corinthians 11, um, starting at verse 17. But there are many other verses, many other chapters, and I urge you to read for yourself. 
do a study on it, get them all, Google where it is and write it down and get into it and devour it. But the reason I'm going to read this one is because it kind of is where I got my fear from at the end of it. So I'm going to start, I'm actually going to go back to front. We're going to start in the middle at verse 23 and uh, I'm going to share some thoughts of it. We're going to talk about the bread, then we're going to talk about the wine and then we're going to finish off with our posture as followers of God. So reading from 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 11, Verse 23, it doesn't matter if you have it there, you just listen to the words here. It says, I have handed down to you what came to me by direct revelation from the Lord himself. So this is Paul speaking, saying, I've had an encounter with Jesus and this is what he has said to me to give to you. So this is a message through Paul, but from Jesus. The same night in which he was handed over, he took the bread and gave thanks. Then he distributed it to the disciples and said, take it and eat your fill. It is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. He did the same with the cup of wine and after supper, or after supper he said, this cup seals the new covenant with my blood. Drink it and whenever you drink this, do it to remember me. So communion, communion is us coming to be spiritually fed. It feeds and equips and empowers us as followers of Jesus because we need this so that our circumstances around us don't overcome us and beat us. In Psalm 23, God tells David, I prepare a feast for you in the middle of your enemies, in the midst of your enemies. All hell is breaking loose. And I can just imagine, I'm not being irreverent, but Jesus is sitting with his feet up. There's a banquet and he said, listen, does it look like it's bothering me? Come and sit beside me and see what can happen in the middle of whatever you're going through whenever you take time to sit and to listen to me. This is the basics of communion. In 1 Corinthians 11 at the end there, it says, eat until you're satisfied. Take and eat your fill. Eat until you're satisfied. That tells me this, don't rush. There's no limit to how long you want to do it and there's no limit to how much you want to do this. We're not told how many times to do this. And I think that's for a reason because I think there's enough in the word of God for us to fight about as Christians. There's no amens. There's enough for us to fight about. And this last act that Jesus left us, he said, I don't want you to fight about this. If you want to do it once, you do it once. If you want to do it every single day, 10 times a day, you do it 10 times a day. But we're going to get on to later on the heart and the posture of that. And so when you are surrounded you know that song that Jason introduced us to? The one that goes on and on and on. Thankfully, they introduced a verse to it. When I'm surrounded. What is it, Jason? Sing it for us. Yes, this is how I fight my battles. This table is how we as Christians should fight our battles. We should bring everything to the table because as a Christian, feasting is actually fighting. We've heard the people talking about resting, but resting and feasting is actually fighting. And so we need to take the things of our life to the table to feed, and we're going to try and understand the purpose of the bread and the wine today, to enable God's power to flow differently through us. Because we need to live different lives. We need to live lives that are marked by his revelation, 
minds that are renewed by him. And so I believe as we come to the table, it recenters us and helps us to think like heaven. It helps us to introduce the kingdom of heaven to the circumstances that we are going through, and it helps us to act and live differently. Who knows that we need to act and live differently? Not in a pompous, arrogant, oh, I love Jesus, I am a Christian. Actually, I want to see you living differently. I want to see Jesus flowing through you. And so it's so easy. It's so easy to be consumed by Facebook, to be consumed by Twitter, to be consumed by the news and let that dictate your mind and your heart and your response. But this is the the table that we need to feed from, not the table of BBC News, not the table of Facebook and Twitter that can so easily infiltrate, but the table that Jesus left us with his his broken body and his blood to recenter our lives. And you know, whenever you're hungry or whenever you're hungry, your appetite needs curved. Okay, and too often I go up to Nibblers and I get a battered sausage supper with super gravy and one time they forgot my super gravy and I was an angry bear, okay? I was blaming the staff, like goodness sake, you can't even just get it right. I want gravy. Sorry, Belarusians, you might not understand this little rant. When you're hungry, sometimes you make the wrong choices. Is that right? Because you're so hungry, you just want something. And there's so many of us as Christians, we are hungry and we're hungry for something and it's this but we go to other things. Nicola doesn't bring me shopping anymore because I, when I go shopping hungry, I buy all the rubbish of the day and my bill goes sky high. You're told scientifically to eat before you go shopping. There you go. That's a fact you've learned today. And it's the same here. What table are you coming to when you're hungry? Where are you being driven to? Let me tell you a little story. Sarah's here today, but on Friday night, Sarah woke up at 1 a.m., the usual, if you know our family, gasping for breath. Her little stomach was going in and out. She couldn't breathe. It was like the hoofing cough or whatever you call that, whooping cough. It was horrible. And usually at that stage, we would go straight to hospital. But because we've got so used to it, we know exactly when and how and when she needs to go to hospital with Reuben. But on Friday night, it was a little different. On Friday night, in the middle of it, Nicola was panicking. Her heart rate, she showed me last night, went up to... Uh, 95% of where it should be because she was panicking. But in the middle of it, I felt like God said, right, you've been doing this for a month now. It's easy. Now's the time. Where are you going to center yourself? And so in the middle of her breathing, I ran downstairs and came back up with this. (laughs) and came back up with the bread and I took communion and I didn't take long at it. And I recenter my heart and I say, right, God, I stand on your blood and your promises and your power. And right now, God, I'm declaring healing over little Sarah. This is another sermon itself. Not every time we do that, it works. But in that moment, you can ask Nicola, her breathing just went back to normal. And she lay over the top of me and she fell asleep. And so it's in those times where I am saying, this is power to recenter on the power that is available through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you and me. And it dictates what your mind and your heart is saying to align it again with heaven. Are we understanding so far? So what table do you go to in time of trouble? What table do you go to? Could be food, could be alcohol, could be stuff on the internet, it could be a spending spree, It could be being the most arrogant, annoying person to live with. All these things are tables that we go to when we cannot cope instead of going to the one thing that he has left us with. 
And I believe life needs to be done around these different tables, and it all starts with this one. Because if we get it right around this with the Father, then it overflows to the dinner table with the family. It overflows to the coffee table and work with colleagues. It overflows to the table that you sit at to give influence in the community and vice versa and so on. And so I need and I want revelation of his kingdom, and I believe this happens at the communion table. And so the next question in the middle of this, why bother, is this, why communion? Why do we do communion? And I have a very basic answer. Again, it's Sarah as an illustration. Now, until recently, every night, I would see Sarah's little face because she started to cry or started to give off. And I know all the things, yes, just let her cry it out. But we have four children, don't tell us what to do. That's the mindset anyway. But she was the, the only girl and you, you wanted to go in and cuddle her. And so many's a night I would go in and I would say, daddy's here, it's all right. But it didn't work. She kept crying, she kept shouting, and she kept shouting daddy because she knew that I was soft. And what did that mean? It meant that I picked her up. And what I realized very soon was that if I picked her up and embraced her, she was happy to go back down. She needed physical touch from her father. She needed the embrace of the father. And in its simplicity, that's what we get to do. Don't worry, nobody has to eat this one, I'll eat it. There's a famous story of that where a little girl was scared and her mother came in and said, listen, it's okay, God's in the room with you. And her response was, I know he's in the room, but I need a God with skin. And so sometimes we need a God that we can come to these emblems because it's just bread and it's just grape juice. But we need to come to these so that we can sit, stop, recenter, and focus and remind and start to remind for me on a daily basis who he is and what he has done. And can I tell you something? See, in these times, I have actually physically felt the embrace of the Father. I can't explain it. But I've been sitting at times and I have felt like someone has their arms wrapped around me saying, it's okay. Ronald Rollheiser says, we are creatures of senses, touch, sight, hearing, smell, and taste. We are humans and we need a God who has some skin, who can be located, who can somehow be physically touched. And I know there might be some questions into that and some theological stuff, but just go back to the basics we're told to be childlike. We get the opportunity in communion to hold the bread in our hands. And as I hold the bread, we're going to go into this now. What I do with it, I focus on my thankfulness. And I think about it. And I pray about it. And it starts to change my very makeup. And the same with the wine. And so Ronald goes on, not this Ronald, another Ronald, goes on to explain there is no adequate explanation of communion for the same reason that in the end there is no adequate explanation for love. Certain realities take us beyond language because that is their very purpose. And so sometimes I come to this and I have no words to say. Sometimes you might come to the table or come to prayer and you have nothing within you except knowing that the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf and is pouring out your heart before heaven. And I believe for me, this is a time for me, God knows, that's why I put the red lights on. It helps us when we see, it helps us when we touch, it helps us when we feel. God made us and he knows us. 
I'm going to have some bread. And so it's not about the transactions. Maybe I shouldn't. There we go. I'm never PC. It's okay. Um, it's not about the transactions. It's not about how many times I do this. It's about relation. It's a relational heart thing. And it's a time for me to be opened, a time for me to be stretched. And it is a time over this last month for me to sacrifice my time, to stop and take time to be with God, but also to be with Nicola and to be with God, to be with my children and be with God. We'd done this in uh, Tin House. The morning that we were starting the renovation in Tin House, we had uh, two old steel um, scones, didn't we? We near choked on the body that morning. And some um, red tea (laughs) that was horrible. But it was the act. We stopped for an hour and we worshiped and we prayed and we took communion together and said, God, you tell us how this place is to be laid out. You tell us your plans and your vision over this. We stand on your word and your promises. It's not about how many times, it's the position and the, uh, of our heart. And so as we sacrifice, sacrifice is an offer of something out of love. A time for us to receive his touch. And you know, we as human beings, we need touch. I know some of us, lower than others, don't like it. You know, we were in, a, in Haiti and you had a couple of bottles between us because we were sweaty and I didn't want to, my arm touching you either, Nigel. But uh, some of us like touch more than others. It's one of my love languages. I need Nicola to rub my hair and stuff like that. So, but you know, there's a disorder. They've done a, a scientific study and it's called skin hunger. And skin hunger has that people who suffer this are more likely to have depression, to have stress, to be less happy. They have trouble expressing and interpreting emotions, and they are less likely to form secure attachments. Our Father knows how much we need contact, and I believe this is one of the ways that he has said, I'm here. I want you to have something physical in your hand that you can look at and touch and think about. I know it's very simple, but out of this table then flows you and me doing this together today. Out of this flows community and relationship. Jesus' last act wasn't just him and the three that were close to him. It was his disciples come together. We're going to feast. I'd say they had a lot of fun, but at the end, we're centering it around this table for a reason. And so it starts with the bread, it starts with the body, it starts with the bread of life. And in this bread, we don't just receive some yeast and whatever else is in it, but we actually are receiving the fullness of who we are. This is a proclamation and a loud, bold shout of who you are as the son or daughter of the king. This is saying, my body was broken for you. What does that mean for your past? But what does that mean to your future pointing forward? Maybe just keep us over here because I keep going back. And so in biblical times, bread was a different thing than we have it now. The bread we have now, you could come back to it in two weeks and it would still be good. Jesse, when we lived in America, I had bread in my cupboard for a month and it still didn't have blue mold on it. There's something badly wrong with that. But in this time, the bread was there as a daily bread. The next day it would be hard, it would be stale. There you are, Jesse. It would be hard, it would be stale, and it would be full of blue mold. And so the way they read this was completely different. They knew, I need this on a daily basis. I need this bread to sustain me, to give me life. When we were in Tenerife, I used to go off every morning on our holidays and come back with a few big baguettes. And you know what? I couldn't wait to go get it because the smell of the fresh bread, and when it was warm, but by the time I got back, to be honest, most of it was eaten. 
but there's something about a craving for your daily filling of fresh bread. You can take that in quite a few different ways. And so as we hone in on the bread right now for a little minute, the key to the bread is thankfulness. Paul, when he's talking about it in the first part there, when you do this, he took the bread and he gave thanks. That's where we get the word Eucharist from. Eucharist means thanksgiving, grateful. And so for me, when I take the bread, I don't complain. I don't tell the Father what I need. All I do is I take a moment to just say what I'm thankful for. Because you know, as humans, we so easily focus on the negative. We so easily look at the stuff that we don't have. We're really good at telling God what he hasn't blessed us with instead of saying, thank you for what you have blessed me with. George MacDonald says that we who are born again indeed must wake our souls unnumbered times a day and urge ourselves to a life with holy greed. This is precisely what King David does in Psalm 109. Praise the Lord, O my soul, he says, commanding his lugging soul to wake up and worship. This is an act of will. Instead of waiting to worship and be thankful until I feel like it, I begin to thank God for the evidence of him in my life, often speaking out loud until my feelings fall into line with the facts. And I've started to understand what this is. And so sometimes I'll come in a bad mood, but as I start to, to say these words from the Psalms, wake up my soul. Do you ever have those moments where you go into a room and think, would you ever wise up? What's going through your head? Do you see what you have? Do you see the blessings in life? Do you see how God is using you? Do you see how God is blessing you? And you have the cheek to think and behave and maybe that's just me. But I find that see when I come to the bread and I hold it in my hand, I start to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I come in on a place where I'm on my knees. Thank you, God, for what you have blessed me. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for what that has accomplished. And I keep thanking, and I keep thanking. And you know what happens? My brain starts to think differently. And there's been a scientific study on this, and it's called your neural pathways. Do you know the paths that are in the sand dunes that you start to walk through? And everybody then starts to walk through and you've got these one or two paths that go where you're in a forest running a trail and the bikes have been on it. You'll know that in Gosford Forest Park. And because everybody starts to follow them, the trail is very evident and the forest is still there around it. And it's the same with our thought patterns. If you are continually thinking negative, if you're continually thinking bad, if you're continually thinking the worst is going to happen, no one likes me, or maybe it's the other way, then whenever you are tired, whenever you're put on edge, whenever you're pushed, whenever you're struggling, that's where your brain naturally just falls back into it. Your thought patterns just fall back into it. And I believe this is one of the massive keys of communion, is that when we take the bread, the God who made us starts to realign our thinking in the way that he created us to think. If I was in America, get an amen there. He starts to realign us the way he created us to be thankful, to be joyful. Listen, it's okay to be down. It's okay to have an argument with God. It's okay, but he doesn't want to leave you there. The bread starts to realign our thought patterns. And Paul is telling us in verse 24 and 25, very simply, step by step, this is how you do it. It's so simple. It's the last act that he has given to us. And so this table can provide everything you need. 
but you have to bring your every need to it. You have to bring it to the table. And he wants you to focus at this part. I'm asking you, focus on his body. We're going to do this at the end. Focus on my blood. Remember where you're living from. Remember that this is a weapon. This is one of attack. The wine, we move on to the wine. It represents his blood. It represents a covenant that's sealed. It's low-fat grape juice because if I'm eating a lot of bread and drinking a lot of sugary juice, it's not good. His blood represents his promise, his sealed covenant. And so this is the bit where I get excited. If I'm honest, the bread for me is, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. I know it's realigning my heart. I know it's changing me. But I love the bit where I get to shout and declare and be excited and jump up and down and dance. Because when we take the blood, it is us declaring over our situations a prophetic declaration because of where our hope comes from, because where our promises lie, because of what the blood represents, Jesus' blood on the cross for us. It starts to realign our heart with heaven. We start to think like heaven, and we start to be bold and courageous. Come on, folks, waking up. It's a prophetic act that introduces heaven right now to where you're at, to what you're doing, to what you're facing. And it's a physical, tangible, tangible thing that submits to God and aligns our heart with his will. And so his blood is a weapon of war. Do you know we're at war? We are at war but we come to this because we do not focus on the enemy. We focus on the one who has already given us victory. And that's the promise that we stand on. Sorry if I repeat myself, but I think sometimes I'm doing it on purpose. I'm turning to Eugene. Keep repeating it until you get it. That's the key. So for me, when I take the blood, I go from, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, to standing up. Thank you, Jesus. That's my preacher's voice. Thank you, Jesus. My goodness, I can't believe what you've done on the cross. And if I believe what it says in the New Testament, if I believe what it says in Acts, I am going to stand firm and I'm going to start to pray for people. I'm going to start to declare your word. I'm going to start to declare your faithfulness. I am going to live as an ambassador for you in this world. Yes. Your ears sore, Caleb. His blood is a weapon of war and it carries and sustains life. It carries and sustains life. So what do I contend for? Friday night, I contended for, or for Sarah. Should have contended for Nicola's heartbeat, but I was contending for Sarah. God, please. Part of it is I, I don't want to have to drive to the hospital at one o'clock in the morning. And thankfully, I didn't have to. But I was contending. One of our workers right now, and this is one of the reasons I started this, she's going through cancer right now. She's been given a 50-50 chance, and every single day I contend, and I say, God, I want the reality of heaven to enter her body, and I want her disease healed. I contend every time I lift that blood. Say, Jesus, please heal her. And you know, as I keep doing that, it moves from just doing it because I feel I had to, to actually, when I see her on Friday at the funeral, I can't contain myself because I am having a connection now where God is doing something in my heart to contend for her. And God starts to break your heart for things when you come from his blood and start to contend for your family who don't know Jesus. Me and Nicola, when we do this, we contend for our children and we declare from his word what they are going to be. 
They are going to be world changers. I don't care what they physically do. They're going to be world changers for his kingdom. Whatever they lay their hands on, they're going to change the world for his glory. I declare it over them. And I stand on those promises because of his blood. And I go on and on and on. It recenters us. We pray for wholeness. We pray for marriages. We pray for relationships. We pray for family. For me, it has to be a celebration too. A celebration of victory. We declare for the welfare of those around us and that's what this hub was for. Do you know what? Half the time, if we're being honest, we don't know what we're doing. But do you know what? We know who we're doing it for. We know what we want to see. We want them to have what we have. And so at the end, we're going to contend for the welfare of Rich Hill. We're going to contend for the young people that think drinking drugs is the way to go. We're going to contend for them because we cannot let them stay where they are. Lost my place. Their anointing comes in communion. And it's anointing that breaks chains. It's anointing that gives power. It's an anointing that gives joy. It's an anointing that gives us a knowledge and a truth because it will not let us stay where we are. It will not let us keep to our little thought patterns that are completely wrong or our views of people that are wrong or whatever it is. God does something in our heart in those moments. It's a time to be bold and declare to the Father what you want to see. The table is not a one-way conversation. I heard a good uh, illustration yesterday. We are not mannequins. Can you imagine if you went to lunch with a mannequin? Or a tailor's dummy? Do you know Belarusians, the thing that we put clothes on in stores to show clothes? They have them in tin house at the front. Imagine we were one of those. How boring would it be? This is where I'll set you today. This is where I'm going to put you on show today. That's not the way God designed us. He gave us free will. He gave us choice. He gave us dreams. He gave us visions. He gave us hunger. He gave us outcries for just injustices that are happening. And that's what he wants us to bring to the table. He wants a two-way conversation where he's saying, listen, I can do this, but I want to watch you come alive as you engage with me and I fill your heart with desires. That's what happens at the table. Again, Ronald Rollheiser says that communion is meant to be simply a family meal, a community celebration, a place like our kitchen tables and living rooms where we come together to be with each other, to console and cry with each other when life is full of heartaches and to be together simply for the sake of being together. But family that sustains community also gather regularly, ideally daily, irrespective of whether there is a special occasion or not. Families are for every day, just as they are for every special occasion, and so is communion. So let me tell you, if you were going to a banquet every day, if you were going to a wedding every day, it soon would become not a special occasion. Actually, you'd get, get pretty sick of putting your bow tie on and your flower. But again, if it was just a mundane, normal spaghetti bolognese every day, you would soon get sick of that. And the table is the same. Some days you will come to the table where it is a celebration, it is a banquet, and you're going and thanking God. Thank you so much. I'm so thankful. Other days when you come to it, you'll have the hardest day that you've ever had. And the thankfulness part will be so hard. And the bit then when you get to the blood of Jesus will be, Jesus, I need to know your power today. It can't always be a banquet. And so this is my argument for how often you do it. For me, I'm doing it on a daily basis. And some days I come and it is a banquet and there's a long thing. Other days it has been me and Nicola as we're getting dinner ready and we're just having a normal conversation. 
I come out with this big thing of grape juice and a, a loaf of bread, and she looks at me. On Friday, it was me sitting in my car in the Tesco's car park, taking five minutes to have the bread and, and the wine. Friday night, it was in a moment where I needed to know Jesus. I was on my knees pleading. In Tin House, it was a time of we're celebrating what God has done and looking forward to what is going to be ahead. Each time is completely different, but each time the posture is the same. I want to encounter you, Jesus, through what you have given us as a gift. But Paul goes on. You'd be glad to know I'm not going to get it all done today. So we'll probably finish in this bit. But Paul goes on in the passage. We can't miss this bit. In verse 26, it says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're retelling the story, proclaiming our Lord's death until he comes. Or in the original version, it's for as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you realize that when you're doing this, you're proclaiming, you're announcing, you're decreeing, you're preaching, whether you like it or not, that you know what, guys? Something happened in the past, but that something is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of this planet because it points to a future that is full of hope, that's full of, of blessings. But it also points to right now, to what is available to you. It helps us refocus on the cross as we, on a daily basis, every time we do this, proclaim he is risen. He is coming again. But because of that, right now, I can live in all his fullness. At the end of that passage, I don't really have time to read it out, but I think it's really significant. Um, verse uh, 27 and then verse 17 to 22. If you can read that yourselves tonight, but... Paul talks about the fact that there was a difference in opinion. I'll read verse 27. For this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in the wrong spirit will be guilty of dishonoring the body and the blood of the Lord. So let each individual first evaluate his own attitude and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. For continually eating and drinking with the wrong spirit will bring judgment upon yourself by not recognizing the body. And so for me, this is one of the verses that stopped me in my tracks of coming to the table. I was terrified. But actually, I believe I was reading it wrong. And so in this context, there was difference of opinion. Their lives were exposed when they came to the table. And so if you're a mature believer, you will overlook offense for the case of unity within the bride. If you're an immature believer, you will want to form cliques around your opinion. You will want to bring... Uh, splits, whatever it may be. And so this is what was happening in the church in Corinth. But Paul is saying here, in light of what I have just shared of you, with you about communion, please start to come to it differently. I used to come, please, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And let me tell you something, it's good to come to the table and search your heart. It's key. But as I was writing this this week, I thought to myself, would any good father stop his child from eating at his dinner table. In fact, no, he would make sure that he does eat from his dinner table. And so it's good to search your heart. It's good to confess your sin. But please don't let guilt stop you from coming to this this morning. 
Please don't let your past stop you from coming to this. It stopped me from having a revelation of what actually this is for and what it does in my life. And so I believe that that verse was read for me. It was out of, out of context. Because in the church in Corinth, they had created an elite religious activity. That when they would, they would come together, all the rich people would sit at one part and eat all the food and drink all the wine and party and have fun while the poor in the community, in the church, were left to the side feeling like nothing and nobodies. And then they had the cheek to say, let's gather around the table. That's the context. That's why they're getting told off. They were behaving like arrogant fools, if we're being honest. That's not what the table's about. There's evidence in our lives what table we are eating from. What table are you eating from this morning? Because if you're coming to this on a daily basis, there's going to be evidence. If you're running to other tables, there's going to be evidence. And the church in Corinth, there was evidence. When time gets hard, what table do you run to? You see, this meal, this meal levels the playing field. We all sit around one table with one perfect, perfect Jesus. The church in Corinth weren't doing this. He died for everyone. Not for black, not for white, not for Catholic, not for Protestant. He died for everyone. And this table is the leveler. And as I was praying about this this week, I felt like God was saying, when you come to the table, you come low and you leave high. That's a good slogan to get people in, isn't it? Come to church low and leave high. But we come low because we come and we're Father. Oh, thank you so much. It's not a pauper, please, 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 low. It's a, in response to what you have given me and what you have done for me, thank you. But he doesn't leave us there. The good father, he takes our hand and he lifts us up and he puts your head up. He said, now, take the wine. Because of what I have done, you lift your head high. Be confident and be bold to go out into that world and to declare and to show and to be me to people who need it. Madame Guyon, I think that's how you said it. She said, I was poor in the midst of riches and ready to perish with hunger near a table plentifully spread and a continual feast. Oh, the beauty ancient and new. We have, why have I known thee so late? And so I realized when I read this, and it's not just about the table, with all that God has to offer, I'm in the middle of a battle and he's sitting over there and he's saying, I've prepared a feast. I'm sitting here waiting and you are like talking to the wall sometimes. You keep fighting, you keep battling and you're not paying attention to me. I have so much available to you at this banquet table and if you get nothing else, that is the key. It brings you to a place where you really center yourself on the things of heaven, on the mind of Christ, on his thoughts for you, on his ways for you. John 15 says, I have... Never called you servants because a master doesn't confide in his servants and servants don't always understand what the master is doing. But I call you most intimate friends for I reveal to you everything that I have heard from my father. In the original Hebrew, the words I call you were, I have invited you to my dinner table. 
And so this morning as we're going to do this, I'm saying God has invited you. He is inviting you to his table. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you for the next two weeks that you take time every day to do this with me. Because, you know, even when you're doing it alone, thousands of people around the world are entering into the same thing. You're never alone when you do this. Thousands of people are reading from Corinthians or wherever and saying, I break this bread. I drink this wine. Thousands of people are recentering themselves through thankfulness and through the promises of God. Thousands of people in the church. And I think to myself, what would happen if we of the church learned again the power of this weapon that we have in our hands? Church, I believe this is a time for us as grace, but as the larger church, to come back to the simple basics that Jesus left us with. And this is one of them. Center our lives around the table. There we go, under 40 minutes. Done well. So we're going to take communion now. If there's any confusion, come and talk to me. If there's any questions, come and talk to me. Probably won't have the answers, but I'll try my best. Um, so let's pray. Let's stand. We're going to come around. We're going to take communion. I'll make sure that nobody gets this bread that I have had my hands on all morning. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your wonderful gospel. I thank you for this wonderful table. And God, I pray for a realization of what these emblems mean. And so, Father, I, I need somebody to hold my mic for me. I take this bread, and as I break it, we give thankfulness to you. Hopefully, I can break it. We thank you. Let's do that. Internal or external, let's, let's thank God. Thank you, Jesus. Even if you don't feel it, take time just to start thanking God. This is the time where we don't engage our brain to do anything else except thankfulness. We don't need to think. We don't need to worry. We just need to be thankful. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that even the scripture says it was the night that you were betrayed, the night that you were hurt, the night that you were given over, but you still broke the bread, and the first thing was thankfulness. You know our pain. You know our struggles. You know our joy. You know our heartaches. But, Father, I pray that we would be thankfulness, thankful, in it all. So why don't we come up one by one and take the bread.
It's an active participation. God is asking us to come to the table.